Well, as we gather to worship that wonderful, merciful Savior, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, chapter 2, we will reflect upon that early church, the establishment of that early church and God's work in that early church for His glory alone. Acts chapter 2, if you would please, beginning in verse 41 through 47, follow along as we read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Pray with me, please. Again, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in this place. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the privilege of of being a part of this baptism, of being reminded of these most important truths, and being assured that at the end of the age or the coming of the age, we are still in Christ. We thank you for that comfort and the peace that comes as a result of that. But I would pray that as we reflect on this passage of Scripture and uh, particularly spend some time this morning talking about the importance of the local church, that you would impress upon each and every one of us this, this obedience that is demanded to this wonderful, merciful Savior who has all authority in heaven and earth, and neither is there salvation in any other. From beginning to end, remind us of the goodness of God in Jesus Christ the securing of our salvation through His blood atonement, the sealing of our lives through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the call to obedience. May we live up to that call. May we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And may we be reminded of the important truths and elements that come along with that call to obedience. Bless us as we spend this brief time in Your Word. May You receive all of the praise and the honor and the glory, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you look at this text and as we reflect upon this passage of Scripture, it's a description of what had happened after the day of Pentecost as God gathered 3,000 souls to Himself through the message and the ministry of the Apostle Peter. And as he describes this early church experience and their responsibility to, to live in obedience to this, to this Jesus, he describes the church, and again, it's important to understand this is descriptive, but there are various passages throughout the New Testament that would remind us that not just descriptive, but prescriptive as it calls us to obedience in these particular areas. Well, first and foremost, what we see in those early believers was their devotion to Christ alone. Look at verse 41, if you would. And those who received His Word were baptized, and there was added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, what does that mean? These people had come to know Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel and through the Old Testament Scriptures in which Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of all of those things. 
And as Jesus Christ fulfilled those things, and, and as these disciples went out to make disciples, it began with the presentation of the Word that described the person and work of Jesus Christ. And immediately after those who believed, they were baptized. We know through the New Testament they went down into the water and came up out of the water. They were baptized by what we would call immersion, not sprinkling and not pouring, down into and coming up out of. The clearest picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is critically important, and we'll, we'll note that in a little bit. Isn't it amazing that in one day, 3,000 souls came to know Christ as Lord and Savior? I suppose and would suspect that that number is probably small today as God is working throughout the world to bring men and women and young people to Himself. But this was a budding church, and this was a significant number, and these individuals had been drawn to Christ under a creed that that first and, and most important element of salvation and the crucifixion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Immediately, because of that, it says in verse 42, and they devoted themselves. Now, certainly that devotion started with their faith in the Word. Certainly that devotion continued through their obedience to the waters of baptism. But in their devotion to Christ in salvation and in baptism, there was a devotion to Christ and their lifestyle. They were different kind of people. One of the big differences between this Acts experience and baptism in our, our contemporary circles is that when con- one would come to know Christ as Savior back then, there were social implications. There were familial or family implications. This was a big deal to be a person of the way. And many times there was a personal price that, that had to be paid. Many times they would, they would lose their jobs and their income. They would be abandoned by this polytheism of, the, of their Roman families. And there was a mark on them, an identification with Christ that had serious, serious consequences. To make that commitment to Christ meant automatically there would be a reciprocal reaction from the community of rejecting them and this commitment to Christ, especially if you came out of Judaism, especially if you came out of Rome and this pantheistic gods that they, that they served. They were all alone, and they recognized and understood they were all alone, and there were only 3,000 others in the text here that shared their same faith commitment. And they began to be devoted to them, knowing that these are the people and the only people that understand me. They, they get me. They grasp what, it, what is happening in my life, and they understand the consequence of faith in Christ. So they devote themselves to this local assembly of believers and to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to Scripture alone. We've been studying John 14 and 15, where Jesus makes it very clear to these disciples that, that they were called, and as they were called, they were called through the Word, and that Word came from the Father through the Son by means of the Spirit and entrusted to them. Make no mistake that the teaching of the apostles was the teaching of Christ. And it was that teaching that created this bond of fellowship, again in verse 42, where, where they were in this together. There was a, an inseparable eternal bond between these individuals because of Christ and through the waters of baptism, their commitment and devotion to that same 
Christ. We read all through the New Testament about the one another's of Scripture that call us to love each other and to serve each other and, and, and to minister to each other and etc. And they knew that. In fact, they were so dependent on this group of 3,000 because of the rejection of the world that they understood their need for that. Today, we don't understand that as much. In this cultural Christianity of the West, there wasn't a big social cost. There wasn't a big family cost. There, there wasn't a big a vocational kind of cost when we came to Christ to Savior. But I believe that the world is changing before our very eyes. And I sense that in some circles there is a price to be had. Tenured professors who profess a faith in Christ and in liberal institutions. Individuals at work who will make a stand on the principles of Scripture when called to do something that, that they feel is, is contrary or in some way in opposition to what Jesus Christ has called them to. Perhaps coming years we will understand this devotion and its necessity and their commitment to each other to see each other through these, these difficult and, and challenging times. It says that they were committed as well to the breaking of bread and the prayers, committed to spending time with each other in each other's homes, and, and probably a reference even to the commitment of celebrating the Lord's Supper, being reminded on a regular basis of what Christ had done for them. They were committed to prayer. This was individual prayer, but it was also corporate prayer. It is critically important that the body prays together. It's important for us to know that we can pray together without being together, but there's an added benefit when we gather in, in a room of those of like precious faith, and we pray for the things that matter in our lives. We pray for the things that, that matter most in our lives. This neglect of prayer has a significant impact on God's people, a significant impact on, on God's church. And these believers in the early church were devoted to that time of prayer. And as a result of what God had done, the Bible says, and all, they were overwhelmed with reference, all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles to verify to validate their ministry. These miracles were to speak to this Jewish culture. They were to speak to the community at large that this message and this person of Christ was real, and there were signs and wonders that were done through the apostles to verify and validate that message. In verse 44, it reminds us, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling the possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as they had need. Why? Because of the vocational cost of, of their faith. This is not a passage of Scripture that teaches us any kind of communism or social structure. This is the devotion of God's people to each other, and when somebody had a need, we would fill and meet that need. This church has done an amazing job meeting the needs of the people who gather here in, in miraculous ways through our benevolence program, and it is right and needful and necessary. It's a, dis a display of truly living the faith with joy and gladness and sharing with those in need. And day by day, verse 46, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with gladness and generous hearts. Last week we talked about the joy that the believer possesses, this gladness, this countenance change, this temperament change, understanding regardless of the difficulty of the circumstances, 
of professing faith in Christ and a world that was antagonistic. There was a joy that they had, and generous hearts, big hearts because of what Christ had done. So they were offering their praise on a regular basis, even daily, praising God and having favor with all of the people in that body. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's much written in our culture today about this group of people that have been identified as the nuns, those who have no affiliation to the local church any longer. Used to be in the Western world, everyone had at least a loose affiliation to the church. But we have reached in the late 1990s and early 2000s a tipping point where there are less people affiliated with their local church, regardless of denomination, and more people who identify as none, not affiliated in any way with any religious system or with any local church ministry. In a recent book by Jim Davis and Michael Graham, they speak of what they call the great dechurching. And it's this notion that you can have Christ, but you don't need the church. This notion that you can have this saving relationship, but the rest of these things described for us in this text are really irrelevant. They're optional things to the Christian life. That was unheard of in the early church. That was unheard of in the New Testament. That was unheard of in the epistles. That was unheard of for generations of those who claim the name of Christ. But today, it seems like church has become one of many options. We really don't need that as long as we have Christ. But that's a defying of the literal teachings of the apostles and of Christ Himself. He's called us out from the world and together with those of like precious faith. There can be no de-churching. We need the church. We are designed for the church. We are built for these things. And our devotion to Christ and the Scripture and one another and the Lord's Supper and prayer, etc., and etc., and etc. There are a number of reasons that the authors of this book talk about this de-churching, but suffice it to say, in my opinion, it's a lack of biblical teaching. We don't teach about the importance of the local church, and that means attendance. And we do so because we're afraid of that fundamental label of, oh, yeah, you're one of those fundamentals. Yeah, you have to be at church when the doors are open, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evening, and any other time, and, and we kind of balk at that notion. That's an offense to Christ. This is His body. These are those who He has died for, and He calls us to that church. And in that church, there are a number of things that, that we do. The ordinances of the church, these Christian practices that are symbolic in nature that remind us of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, this Jesus who was both Lord and Christ, once crucified, now risen. And in these ordinances of the church surrounding Christ, they are practices to remind us of the importance of getting the gospel right and a call to holiness. Baptism represents and helps us to step into a union with the death and the burial and resurrection of Christ. It is this this, this rite or the symbolic practice to remind us that everything we are and who we are is rooted in that Christ. When we talk about the baptism of believers, then, of course, we're talking about credo-baptism. There's a big difference between those two things. And credo-baptism is the practice of baptizing only those 
who have made a personal profession of faith in the factual basis of the gospel. You are desperately sinful. There is none righteous, no, not one. You are called to confess and repent that sin and to place your faith in Jesus who died for your sins on the cross of Calvary, but no longer is on that cross, no longer buried in an empty tomb. He is alive and well, seated at the right hand of the Father, calling us to holiness and calling us to obedience and calling us as the church to get out the gospel for the glory of God so that He might add to the church daily those who should be saved. Jesus Christ was baptized Himself. A really interesting account in Scripture is found in Matthew chapter 3. And John the Baptist, as a prophet, is baptizing people. And his baptism was a baptism of repentance. In other words, those who would be baptized would be those who were repenting of their, of their sins. Jesus' ministry was going on overlapping John the Baptist for a period of time And Jesus comes to Galilee, and He presents Himself to John the Baptist, and He says to John the Baptist, I wish to be baptized. It was a public baptism. People were going to see this. And John, understanding all the way back when they were both in their mother's womb, remember that text? John says, who am I to baptize you? Mine is a baptism of repentance. You don't need any repentance. In fact, Jesus, you should be baptizing me, not the other way around. And Jesus said, stop. This is necessary, and this is important. He was identifying himself with the sinner, the very one he came to seek and to save. He came into this world identified with sinners, but he was without sin. This baptism of Jesus was a picture even then of all of these people of the coming crucifixion, how Jesus would be killed, put down into the ground, three days later raised up out of the ground. This was a picture of, uh, if, if you would, the initiation of His public ministry and in word picture telling the people, this is what I came for, to die, to be buried, and to raise again on the third day day. It was right and it was necessary, not just in his identity or identification with the sinner, but as a a future view of what would come to pass in the life of Christ Himself. What we observe here is similar to that. It expresses our union with Christ. It says that because of our faith in Christ, we are in union with His death and burial and resurrection. We have died to the old, old self, and we've been raised to newness of life. All of this matters. We're commanded to practice that through the, through the Scriptures as an ordinance of the local church. But it also does something else for us. It helps us to remind ourselves of the close solidarity we have with each other. They're so radically different than Acts chapter 2. You can't do this by yourself. You weren't saved to do this by yourself. You're not the lone ranger making this work on your terms. You are called to the body of Christ and to be a part of a local assembly, to be reminded through these ordinances of what Christ did for you and expressing your devotion. We will do that in a moment as we come to this table. And we're reminded that He, he died for us, that He shed His blood for us. He was broken. It was a despicable crucifixion. We're reminded 
that it was for you and for me. He paid the price and the penalty in full. Are you thankful for that this morning? We have to be reminded of that. We get full of ourselves. Who needs the church? You do, thank you. I have it from here, Jesus. No, you don't. This same Jesus who had all authority still has all that authority, and you are absolutely dependent upon Him. Life doesn't work without God. Every once in a while, we need to be reminded of that, don't we? That's what these ordinances are for. Come together and be reminded. Reminded of what? What Christ has done for you. Remember, in the context of the New Testament observance, Men and women are called to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Why do you suppose that is? To be reminded of the price that He paid for your salvation, and to be reminded that in light of that price, He has called you to a life of obedience and holiness, and we're not home yet, at least not me. Some of you think you are. What is the silence for? to realize this great salvation in Jesus Christ, and we can't make a go of this ourselves. We are no match for this world, and we can't even live the Christian life without the sustaining grace of Christ and all of its glory. It's important that we remind ourselves of that. The standard of identification as a standard of holiness, and you're not home yet. These practices matter for, for a number of different reasons. One of the things that sometimes we underplay is the importance of the local church for believers, not just because of what we read in Acts chapter 2, but because of the, the believer's responsibility to the body of Christ. There's a passage of Scripture that I'd like to read that's found in, in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, where he talks about salvation in Christ alone and its implications. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, it says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew, Greek, slave, free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. A reminder that our salvation is in Christ alone. A calling into this body of Christ and these many members who've had that same spiritual reality. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. God has arranged, verse 18, the members in the body, each one of them, as He chooses. That body is the universal body of Christ, and we are all a part of that body in Christ. But equally, the New Testament is clear. We are also a part of that visible body, joining, just like they did in Jerusalem, to one local church. And that joining to that local church is for worship, 
for the teaching, sitting under the teaching of the Word, for prayer and for fellowship, to support us as this world crushes us under the weight of sin, to bring about accountability so that we grow in the grace and the knowledge, and, and when we stray, to bring discipline into our lives. It is a place that ought to be a place of refuge. Why? Because Christ has saved us. He's called us out of the world and into His body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. I don't need the church. On the contrary, on the contrary. As Paul presents this picture of the body, he also reminds us that as we gather together, when one member suffers, we all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. So the body of Christ is filled with individuals but those individuals incorporate the visible body of Christ in a local church kind of setting. Why does that matter? Because that is the very foundation of the teaching that will stand in opposition to this de-churching of the Christian and this notion that you don't need the body and you don't need the church. Jesus says, how does the body function when it doesn't have an eye or a hand or a foot. It still functions, but not the way it ought to. And the same is true with our lives. There's inevitable suffering in this world, and yet we're called to endure to the end and promised that an endurance is in Christ alone. But as believers called into this one body, gathered in a local place, we need to take care of each other particularly. When we're, when we're pressed in on every side, there's a popular phrase in politics today, the walls are closing in. As a Christian in this pagan culture, I feel the same thing. The walls are closing in. Rosaria Butterfield it's a tenured professor at the University of Syracuse, probably 20 or 25 years ago, maybe a little longer. She was a radical feminist, a practicing lesbian, and she stood in opposition to everything that Christianity represented. Lo and behold, we're taught the lesson that no one is unreachable by the grace of God. Rosaria Butterfield comes to know Christ as her personal Lord and Savior. Her most recent book reminds Christians of what she went through personally. She said, I couldn't have done this without the church. I never would have been able to break away from my old lifestyle, my old habits, my old sin. And the gang that I used to hang, I needed the refuge in the church. I needed the encouragement. Hang on. Hang in there. Don't give up. I needed the, the, the blessing of the church teaching me what was right and showing me what was wrong and being loving and patient during this whole process. Appreciate her honesty. The five lies that Satan tells us that, that we can do this all by ourselves. And she gives the testimony. I was at a place that I wouldn't have survived if it wasn't for the body of Christ. You say, well, I don't have that story, so I don't need the Bible, and I don't need the body, and I don't need this church stuff. You're a fool. Everybody needs a place of refuge. 
Well, mine is Jesus. Well, let me tell you something. He's in this place, and this is His body, and He says, come. You can't say, I don't need it. You can't say, I don't matter. You can't say, I don't count. You can't say any of that stuff. We underplay the importance of the local church. Possibly. It's one of the reasons that some make a profession of faith on rocky ground and shallow ground and thorny ground. They never knew Him, never separated themselves from the world, never understood the implications of their Christianity. Don't ever underestimate the importance of the local church. It is needed, it is necessary, and it is all because of what Christ has done for us. If you're here this morning, you've heard these words before, but you still don't grasp the importance, that's pretty simple. In Acts chapter 2, as well as today, there are those people in this world who see their sin. And they understand what Christ has done on their behalf, and broken in spirit and contrite in spirit, they repent of their sins, and they cry out to God for forgiveness. And isn't it amazing that as sinful as we were, even Rosaria Butterfield, as we cry out to God, He is faithful and just to forgive. That's you, and that, that's me. And He's sown us and knit us together in this relationship to be reminded that life and the Christian life is bigger than you. So He gives us these, these cues, these hints. He gives us these realities that remind us of the things that matter most and the authority of this Jesus who sent out these disciples to build His church. It's the reminder of believers' baptism. It's the reminder of the Lord's Supper, and it's a reminder for all of us, and I hope you grasp this, that you are not intended, you were never intended to do this by yourself. God has brought us together, even the parts that seem unnecessary. Some of you are keeping a list, right? Even the parts that are unnecessary, He's brought us together for His glory. So we gather to glorify the King. And in days like this, it's a special time. Everything that we've done and do points to Christ and His sufficiency and His call in our lives to come apart and be separate and be joined to His body. It's the very purpose of the Lord's Supper. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, yet God in His grace, through His ministry of His Spirit under the teaching and preaching of the Word, opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel and rescued your soul. We're called to remember those things. In fact, that's the only thing we're called to remember. That's the only thing that matters in the context of reality. Do you know Him? Or don't you? And if you know Him, if you know Him, this is what's required of you. And what is that? That we be faithful, faithful to the truth, and faithful to the body, and faithful to the Word, and faithful to prayer, and all of those things that we've talked about. But all of that takes place within the context of the local church, and we live life together. And oftentimes, we're the ones coming alongside of those who are little, sold, and struggling but eventually we will have our day 
and we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Aren't you thankful that God has others who have your back? They're praying for you. They will, they will offer a kind word. They will walk with you through life. That's why the body matters. You cannot claim the name of Christ and de church. It is a contradiction. He has rescued you, and He's put you here for a reason. May He glorify Himself through every member of this body, and may we be reminded that none of this happens, none of it, outside of what Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary, a gruesome payment for the penalty of sin, your sin and mine, so that we would never have to answer for it again. To God alone be the glory for that. So, as we gather at this table, it's to be reminded of all of these things that we've talked about, and even more, most importantly, to lift the name of Jesus in worship. Brian Seacrest, you ask a blessing on the bread. Dear Lord, we come before you today and we were reminded of the sacrifice of your body and the fact that you tell us that the sacrifices of God are thanksgiving and a broken and contrite heart and spirit. And Lord, it stands in contrast to how we actually live our lives, and I pray that you would, by your grace, that you would teach us to uh, give us the courage to live lives that are humble and obedient for your glory and for, for the good of your body. In Jesus' name, amen. As the deacons distribute the elements, as we often do on this Christmas season, we remind you of the finished work of Jesus Christ that began in a lowly manger for the glory of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at that saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy 
the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to me, according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. scriptures we learn that not only are we to be faithful to the local church and sitting under the preaching and the teaching, the words of the apostles in the New Testament, we're to be obedient to all of those words. And our call to obedience goes far beyond one-time event or even now and again. We're called to be holy. In fact, Peter reminds believers, be ye holy as I I'm holy. Why, why is that? Because this same Jesus, born in a manger, crucified by sinful men, was made Lord and Christ to the glory of God the Father. And there is no sacrifice too great on behalf of God's people than the life 
of obedience. So as we come to this place and do what we've commanded to do, we're, we read in Scripture in the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He broke it and blessed it. He gave it to His disciples and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. Oh, why would you ask the blessing on the cup? Our Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for this day, this day that you have created for us. We're thankful for this church, this church that you also have created for us. We're thankful for this season of thanksgiving. We have so much to be thankful for. Thankful for our salvation. Thankful for the cross. Thankful for what Jesus Christ did on that cross as he shed his blood for us. As we partake of this cup, may we be reminded of that sacrifice of his blood. May we forever be thankful. We ask this in your name. Amen. from the Gospel of Matthew. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. With him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now the feast of the governor was custom to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom he wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to him, or to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that he had delivered him up. Beside, while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered because of him in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, 
then what shall I do with Jesus, who was called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. And he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them ran and at once took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up the spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holiest city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. After the same manner also, Christ, Christ took the cup, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death until he come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Father, you have spoken into this world by your Son, Jesus Christ, and his person and in his work that is finished on the cross, secured by the glorious resurrection, and will keep us 
until that age that is to come. Truly, neither is there salvation in any other. And for some reason, you've privileged us to know that truth that has set us free. Teach us the implications of that truth. Ground us in that truth. Always bring us back to that truth and create in this body those who live holy lives. Create in this body those who are committed to the ordinances of the church. Create in this body those who understand the significance of this gathering of your people and how much we need each other. And remind us that as we come apart out of that world, there is an assurance and a hope that we cling to, knowing that through the coming of the age and the end of the age, you are with us always, secured through the blood of Jesus Christ, ministering on His behalf until we hear the sound of the trumpets. We're called to remember until you come. We pray for your coming, but perhaps even more, we pray that we would remember faithful to those things that you've called us to be faithful to for your glory alone. Now, as we take up this offering to meet the needs and come along, side of those who are part of us to encourage them in their time of need, bless the gift, bless the giver, give wisdom in the administration of these funds, but may it all be for your glory and the great things that you have done in Christ and in us. For we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.